This event was recorded live at the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival, a 17-day celebration of words and stories welcoming authors and audiences from around the globe. You can hear more events by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast, and watch event videos at edbookfest.co.uk and on YouTube at edbookfest. Good evening, everybody. What a turnout. Well, welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm James Crawford. I'm a writer and broadcaster, and I'm delighted to be your host tonight for this special Bailey Gifford Prize Lecture. Alongside me is Serhi Plocky. He was the winner of the 2018 Bailey Gifford Prize for this absolutely astonishing book, Chernobyl, The History of a Tragedy. Now, Serhi is Professor of History at Harvard University. He's a leading authority on Eastern Europe, and he's the author of a, a number of other books, including Lost Kingdom, The Gates of Europe, The Last Empire. But this evening, our focus is on northern Ukraine. And at the time of the Chernobyl explosion in 1986, Serhii lived just 500 kilometers from the blast site on the other side of the Iron Curtain of the then Soviet Union. So tonight, we'll be hearing about chain reactions, but not just in the context of nuclear physics, but also how this disaster may have been the catalyst for the downfall of the Soviet Union itself. So Serhii's going to lecture, going to give a talk for about half an hour, then we'll talk for maybe 10, 15 minutes, mm -hmm. and then I'll open to the floor for questions from you, the audience of which I'm sure there will be a great many. If I could just ask you to make sure that your mobile phones are switched off, if you'd like to tweet about the event, then please do, but just wait until the lights go up before you do so. But now, Serhi, the floor is yours. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Actually, it works. Wonderful. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for coming. It's really a pleasure to be here. I'm thankful to the uh, Bailey Gifford Prize people and also for the members of the jury. Uh, it's interesting that they awarded that prize before the HBO Sky miniseries <laughs> were, were, uh, on, uh, were on TV, were on the air, so somehow they knew what was going to happen. And uh, really, um, the um, HBO Sky miniseries, this is also something that uh, inspired me and also Nick Burley, who suggested that topic, to uh, come up with today's lecture, with today's presentation. It's subtitle, the title is of course Predictable Chernobyl, but subtitle is Truth in Our Times, and uh, that's, that's what I'm going to talk about. Uh, in the last few months, I was getting a lot of questions about, of course, HBO or Sky series, whether that was true, whether they were really unprepared, whether they were really so heroic, whether they were really so stupid, and, and so on and so forth. And uh, yes, I, I, given that I wrote the book before that, uh, I felt uh, quite prepared to answer many of those questions, not all of them, some details I didn't know, I, I had to go back and check them. But overall, those factual things, they're, they're, uh, it was relatively easy to answer them, to deal with them. But a big question about the so-called big truth about Chernobyl, and that means whether really the uh, makers of the, of the uh, film, of the mini-series, were able to get to the big truth. That's what uh, made me start thinking about uh, uh, the question of whether we learn the lessons of Chernobyl or not. Because on one level, we certainly know today about Chernobyl, about what caused it, about the consequences. Then we knew, certainly immediately after the explosion or, or or um, uh, even, even five years ago. On the other hand, we know more, but I, I, I'm not sure that we understand more. Uh, the debate that we have on uh, nuclear power as a whole, uh, 
uh, certainly on the one hand helped to advance the discussion about Chernobyl, but it also muddied the waters. And on the top of that, we are really at the point where the nuclear age meeting the, the age of alternative facts and fake news. And uh, very often we live in this kind of echo chambers, especially with the Facebook, where whatever we, we think is reinforced by people like-minded like us, and then we are really surprised how this or that president was elected in the United States, or why, why UK, UK is staying or UK is living. Uh, so in, in a way, we know more, but it doesn't mean that we understand more. And that's, that's a bigger topic that I'm trying, I'm trying to address in a sense of what we, what we see when we, we have this frame, whether this is the entire picture, whether we get the most important part of the picture or not. These are, this are all questions that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to deal with. And uh, uh, when it comes to Chernobyl, there are three stages in, in, the, in the history of the accident, which happened to be the, the worst nuclear accident in, in the world history. So there are three stages where learning the truth, knowing about the truth, was really extremely important. The first one was about the uh, deficiencies and the problems and uh, that the reactor, the so-called RBM car reactor, the, the uh, water graphite reactor had, and that was one of the causes of the explosion. The, the, the atmosphere of secrecy that surrounded it was very important precursor to the accident. Another part of the story is the cover-up and, and holding uh, truth about Chernobyl and what happened and what areas were affected or not affected from people like myself uh, who lived at that time in, in the region. And finally, finally uh, the, third, the third one is about the way how, how people were really struggling to get the truth about Chernobyl. And I'm arguing in that book, and I will try to, to talk about that a little bit today, that there is really a direct line, a direct line between Chernobyl, explosion in Chernobyl, and five years later, the fall of the Soviet Union. And it's not the explosion at Chernobyl that destroyed the Soviet Union in terms financially, economically, or otherwise. It's basically the cover-up that was there. It's, it's, it's inability to handle the truth about the Chernobyl and face the, the, the people of the Soviet Union that eventually leads to the mass mobilization in republics like Lithuania, or republics like Ukraine, or Armenia, for example, that eventually contribute to the disintegration of the Soviet Union. So that's uh, the, the three main, three main uh, elements that I'm going to focus on today before coming back to something that I started with, and that was the question of truth in our times. And I'll, I'll talk about, about HBO series, and I'll talk about also the Russian response to them that uh, claims that uh, it's, it's the CIA agents that somehow were involved in them. Uh, in the explosion. Um, <clears throat> let me start uh, with, this, with this image, and this is the image of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, the, the, the figure that is respected all over the world, and the, the, really the politician who, in my opinion, uh, did the most for the end of the Cold War and also the most for bringing elements of democracy to the Soviet Union. But in my story about truth and truth seekers, he's not a hero. He's maybe a character. He, he is not exactly a villain, but he would be, on, on that, on, on that uh, 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 spectrum, he would be closer to a villain than to a hero. Uh, it took him 18 days to address the nation about what happened at Chernobyl. And even then, two-thirds of his speech were dedicated to foreign policy and attacks on the West for demanding more truth about, about Chernobyl. And of course, people like me, we were getting truth from BBC and from the Voice of America, not from the newspaper Pravda or Truth. Uh, or or, or uh, there was another newspaper, it's still going on, Izvestia, which was called news, and there was a joke back then, there were a lot of jokes, wonderful jokes in the late Soviet Union, 
and there was one of them was going that, uh, well, there is no truth in truth, and there is no news in news. Uh, so we were getting that from, from somewhere else, and, and again, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was very much part of that, of that cover-up. It took him three years to visit the site of the, of the explosion. The uh, reasons for that, the, the, the reasons for that were numerous. One of them, and, and Gorbachev's line of defense always was that, well, we didn't know the entire truth about what happened, and that's why we share, didn't share it with the population. Well, they knew enough truth to share and, and, and to let people know that they were in danger. And it took days and days to evacuate uh, close to 100,000 people from the 30-kilometer exclusion zone around, around Chernobyl. There were, of course, other things at play, and one of them was economy. Uh, the, the image next to Gorbachev, this is the image of the 27th Party Congress, the, the first Congress where Gorbachev appeared as the general secretary, the, 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 the leader of the party, the leader of the country. And it was at that Congress that they decided to double the construction of the nuclear reactors in the next five year, during the next five year period, compared to the previous five years. And of course, how to do that is to cut the time needed for the construction of reactors from seven years to five years. So they, they, were, they were cut in corners. They needed that electrical energy. Gorbachev was about to start, uh, to start economic reform. The Soviet economy was in tailspin, so their hope was that the scientific, they, they called it the technical scientific uh, progress, and nuclear was part of that, that it would save it. Another reason for, for silence was, of course, that the Cold War was going on. And that was a huge, a huge blow to the image of the uh, nuclear superpower, second nuclear. Uh, uh, um, at that point, actually, the Soviets had more nuclear warheads than the Americans had. And uh, probably roughly the equal number, the equal uh, number of missiles. So that was another another reason for for keeping silent. And then uh, one of uh, uh, aides to, to Gorbachev, he said quite openly, we were afraid of panic. We thought that panic was actually worse than than radiation. And again, uh, uh, it's not in my text, it's not in the book, but the the old Soviet jokes. Keep, keep coming back to me as I am talking about that. And one of them was going that two people uh, meet in Haven and uh, both of them are victims of Chernobyl. And the one said, okay, why, why did you die? And he says, well, I died from radiation. And why did you die? Well, I died from information. <laughs> so uh, uh, the, 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 the lack of information really led, led in, in not to death, but in many cases in, in situation where people's, people's health was endangered. And uh, the, the Soviet Union was, was exactly as it is shown in the, in the uh, mini-series, uh, a police state. They, they show their... KGB officers going all over the places and arresting people. That is not true. After all, KGB was a secret police, so, so they were not there in front of the cameras. But, but that's, that's the, they, they were, mm, mm, uh, in that way, they, they, they were trying to recreate visually the atmosphere. And the atmosphere of secrecy was there, and it was overriding the whatever emerging culture of safety, including uh, emerging culture of safety in, with nuclear, that was emerging. The reason for that is that, like in any other country in the Soviet Union, the, the uh, nuclear starts with, of course, bomb. It doesn't start with electricity. What was different in the Soviet Union compared to UK or compared, for example, to the United States was that the same people and uh, These are people on the, on, on the screen here, Mr. Uh, Alexandrov, who was the head of the Academy of Sciences, and this Mr. Slavsky, who uh, had the most powerful ministry that the Soviet Union ever had. And that ministry was called uh, Ministry of Medium Machine Building. 
Well, that was the Soviet Manhattan Project that was going through the, through the entire Soviet history. So they were the, the, the fathers of, of that reactor. The reactor was not just designed, but first run at the plant that was um, under the, under, in the ministry of Mr. Slavsky, so it was in the military industry. And in 1975, an accident of the same type that happened in Chernobyl happened at that Leningrad power plant next to today's city of St. Petersburg. Uh, again, it didn't have that kind of consequences because they had a more uh, qualified uh, operators working there and, and, and a little bit more luck than people in Chernobyl had. But that happened, but of course, the information about that was not shared even with people in the industry, in the engineers and operators who were running the, the plants like Chernobyl and others, they didn't have to that uh, information because it was considered to be top secret. And, and this, the, this atmosphere of secrecy, keeping information or truth even from the people in the field was, was one of the reasons for, for, for Chernobyl explosion. Um, Today you can, you can go and visit uh, Chernobyl Exclusion Zone. You can also visit the city of Pripyat, which housed close to 50,000 uh, construction workers and also people who worked at the, at the operators at the nuclear power plant. And I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that that city would be still there would be still populated by humans and not by animals, as it is populated now. There is just explosion of animal life in, 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 in area and in the city. If the information about what happened at Leningrad or St. Petersburg in 1975 would be shared not with me, not with us, not with the rest of the world, but at least within, within the, 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 the circle of engineers and operators within, within the industry itself. The, the, Concealment of truth, of course, only started with the accident in, in uh, Leningrad, and it continued then with the accident in Chernobyl. I already talked that people like me, we had to rely on the advice coming from uh, Deutsche Welle or BBC or Voice of America saying, okay, st stay inside. Don't go on outside. Don't let your people, uh, so, sorry, don't let your children to, to play the outside. So it wasn't my government that was advising me. It was the, the Cold War adversaries. And that was still, Cold War was in its height, or second height, in 1986, that were given that advice. So there was very little information, certainly, about, about um, uh, uh, what, what happened in Chernobyl. The people themselves who dealt with the disaster their line of defense at, at, the, at the trial, trial, by the way, is showed in that HBO Sky miniseries, their line of defense was, please show us one textbook, one instruction, one memo that says that things like that cap can happen at our nuclear power plant. They couldn't believe that those things would explode. They were not prepared. The, the firefighters, and again, firefighters are in the, in the miniseries as well, who were going there, they didn't know what they were dealing with. They thought when they started to fall uh, and, and lose conscious and so on and so forth, they thought that there was maybe some chemical release or something like that. They were the, uh, the, the, the firefighters brigade or unit that was attached to the nuclear power plant, but they never were trained to deal with the nuclear with, with the radiation, with the spread of radiation. And again, because, because concealment of truth. The, one of the main characters in the miniseries, and he's also quite prominent in my book, is Valery Legasov. And one of the things with the miniseries is that they, they, they had to, to create, again, I don't think they had to create drama. There was enough drama there. But they also went that, that uh, uh, more or less established, established uh, way when, when you make uh, things for TV. There are villains and there are, there are uh, victims and, and, and heroes. And in real life, and in my book, well, I, I was trying to recreate that real life, very often the same person can be a victim and, and can, be, can be a person responsible for what happened, can be a villain and hero in the same, in the same way. 
for example, the director of the plant, um, uh, Mr. Bruhanov, in, in the, in the miniseries, it's kind of a caricaturish image. He's kind of an embodiment of what is negative in that system of political control and, and yes-man type of, of atmosphere. Well, in real life, he was, he was not a bad, bad, bad person at all. But um, uh, Legasov is, of course, a major, major uh, hero there, and he is hero in my books as well. But he commits suicide for a number of reasons, and one of them was he was really, because he spent so much time in Chernobyl at the, at, at the very beginning of that, he was going to very dangerous places. So he had some serious problems with health that were caused by, the, by, by that exposure. And that, of course, added to the to depression. So that the, the depression that he had was also based on that on that uh, impact of radiation. But there was other thing that immediately contributed to his suicide. It wasn't that KGB was after him or he was hiding something from them. There was no point of doing that. But his own people in his own industry turned against him because he went to Vienna in. April, uh, sorry, in August of 1986, and disclosed things that were not disclosed before about the way how the Soviet, what the reactor was, how the Soviet nuclear industry worked, and so on and so forth. He came back, he was never forgiven by people in his own industry. He was deputy director of the institute. The next time they had election to the, uh, to the board of the institute, he was not even elected to the board by people in his own institute. On the other hand, he also knew that he didn't tell all the truth about, about Chernobyl. He stuck more or less to the official line at that point that the only guilty were the operators who violated the safety procedures. And indeed, that was the case. They violated so, uh, safety procedures. But that would not be enough to create Chernobyl if there would be no problems with the reactor itself. And everyone in the top echelon, including Gorbachev, knew about that already since the summer of 1986. But they believed they couldn't afford to tell the truth. Because what telling the truth would mean? Shutting down more than 10 other reactors all over the Soviet Union and hurting the sales of reactors to Eastern Europe. They were sell selling a different type of reactor, a little bit more safer, but that's, that's what they were thinking about. And to achieve that goal, to, 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 to keep that, that, that information secret, of course, what they were doing, they were trying to present the image that things were going as usual, that things were normal. And one of those examples that, that is, is uh, the, the, most, the most maybe revolting, horrendous, whatever it's, it's, it's inhuman, is the May Day Parade in Kiev uh, on May 1st, 1986, when for two hours uh, the, the uh, citizens of the city, including a lot of children, were marching through the streets of Kiev to send a signal to the West that all these all this, uh, publications about high dosage of radiation being released, that that was all not true. Things are good. The, the leaders of the republic are there with their families, children are marching. Well, uh, uh, earlier this summer I was in Kiev and took part in the presentation of a huge volume of documents released now from the former KGB archives. And uh, one document was especially striking. That was a document that says that in this and this di district uh, of, of Kiev, the authorities that were supposed to collect the uniforms from the children who were marching in that parade and disactivate them, remove electricity, they failed to do that. That means that they had to disactivate the, the, the uniforms in which children were marching on May the 1st. And it's the, the all fingers point to just one man, Mikhail Gorbachev, who ordered that. He later th said it was a mistake. That's the, so much. Again, uh, uh, Gorbachev is, 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 is there presenting really consensus and presenting really a model of the government that existed in the Soviet Union in 1986. 
Uh, another, another wonderful example of, of concealing the truth about, about Chernobyl, again, in the same volume of these former KGB documents, they publish reports of people who worked for KGB who were imprisoned, and they were put in the same cells with these three managers of the, of the nuclear power plant who were put on trial. And their task was to report back not only what those people were saying when they were back in cell. Okay, I'm losing. No, I'm back. Um, uh, I thought that I said something that I was not supposed to say. <laughs> okay. Th thank God I'm still, I'm still not telling all truth, it looks like. Yeah. Um, so they were... They were um, trying to convince them to give a particular line and not to talk about problems with the reactor. Uh, so again, one more document that we just, we just uh, received. It, again, it was published. It was published earlier this year. Another unbelievable thing, again, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little bit off track, but I, I, I think I have to say that something that I just recently learned. I, after the book was published, I didn't know about that. Uh, there was a highly classified operation which was called Cyclone. What that meant was that the uh, pilots were sent in, in, in their planes to the radioactive clouds to release a particular type of uh, chemical that was supposed either to make the clouds to seed the rain or to stop them from raining. And the idea was to, to protect the big cities because the radiation was moving with wind and radiation was then moving with precipitation. And that's, that's how you got all this uh, uh, radiation in Wales or you got radiation in, in uh, northern Italy or in Austria or in Sweden. It was, it was a lot of it was coming with wind and rain. So they protected major cities like Moscow and Kiev, for example. But what that meant that they allowed those clouds to, to rain mostly in the, in the um, uh, countryside, which... You can see of, of logic of that. You also think, okay, thank God that I didn't have to make that kind of decisions at that time. But one thing you're absolutely sure about, if that happened, you were supposed to tell those people there that they were living in these terrible conditions and help to evacuate them. And that, that part was missed. That part wasn't, that, that, that part didn't happen. And uh, again, the, 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 the impact was, was enormous in terms of the, of the uh, uh, health of the population, in terms of the environment in general. Uh, the, the jury is still out there trying to figure what is the, what is the toll, what, what, what is the cost of, of, of that for the, for the environment and for human beings. We are still debating the, 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 the number, the, the difference in numbers is huge. Uh, United Nations are saying that uh, the number of people who died as the result of exposure is close to 4,000 people. Maybe 2,000 will die in the next 10 years. Uh, the, the Greenpeace is talking about 90,000 to 100,000. So it's, it's, it's very difficult to say. What we know for sure that was that there was a huge spike in the thyroid cancer among children. Additional 4,000 cases of uh, uh, thyroid cancer. And what I can tell you from my own experience that whatever was the impact on, on, on your body, there was a huge impact which continues till today on your mind. And this is a big thing because that puts your, uh, puts your immune system down. That, 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 that sends you into depression on its own. And uh, um, again, uh, the, the, the survey was done in Europe as a whole about how people feel about their health. So in terms of how people feel about themselves and perceive themselves, Ukraine is actually the sickest country in, in Europe. And again, the, the medicine is not, is, is not great there, but again, the, uh, it's, 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 it's the way how people think about themselves and perceive. And of course, Chernobyl, Chernobyl is a big part of that. I, I come from Ukraine myself. Anyone having anything, immediately they, they, they would think about Chernobyl, where I was on that day. While it was raining, why did I allow children to, to go outside? So 
whether that, that there was a radiation at that point or not, whether the levels were really high enough to, to uh, uh, impact your immune system and, 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 and your, your uh, uh, inner organs and, and your body, it certainly, impacted, it certainly impacted your mind. That's, by the way, uh, the map for, it seems to me, cesium-137 in terms of, of, the, of the, um, uh, where, where the precipitation went and, and which, which parts which parts of, of, of Europe uh, suffered the most. And as, as you see, it's, uh, there are some areas relatively close to the Chernobyl that are absolutely clean. It all depended on where it was raining, where it was not raining. Uh, and uh, uh, if, you, if you probably Moscow would be, okay, somewhere in here. So you see the, this front there, so that the clouds were not allowed, were not allo uh, allowed to go there. Now, you can conceal truth, but you can't conceal it forever. And in the case of the Soviet Union, that, that uh, inability to, to still hide the truth happened relatively soon. Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, who, is, who is close to the villain in my story, is also a big hero in the story of bringing democracy to the Soviet Union. And he introduces some elements of electoral demo uh, democracy to the Soviet Union two years after Chernobyl. This is at the time when people actually are still trying to figure out whether they live, they, they try to get the map, the, the, the map where they live, how, how affected they were, and of course that information was, was top secret. So the first mobilization, mass mobilization in the Soviet Union, it takes place around the issues of Chernobyl disaster. People want the map or people are concerned about nuclear power plants which were all um, administered from Moscow, were in the central all-union jurisdiction, whether they actually presented a threat or not threat to their particular place, to their particular republic. And uh, the mass mobilization happens around issues of ecology. The party couldn't stop that that was considered to be the first legitimate reason for people to organize. And one of the reasons for that was that radiation didn't distinguish between whether you are a member of the party or not, whether you are a member of Central Committee or not, or whether you are a blue-collar worker or you are an engineer or you are, or you are a nurse. It didn't, it didn't matter. So the, the society suddenly finds something in common, this threat, and the truth that is kept away from them, something in common, and that crosses the lines, party lines and social lines and other lines. And, and that's, that's where the first mobilization comes from. And it comes in a country that directly was not affected by Chernobyl, or not to the same degree as Ukraine. The country, it's a small country called Lithuania. Uh, they had the power plant, nuclear power plant, that was exactly of the same kind, the Chernobyl one. Those of you who watched HBO series, they were shooting it at the Ignalina nuclear power plant in Lithuania. So that, 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 that was a clone of Chernobyl one. So they mobilized 20,000 people who uh, circled the, the, the plant and, and that was what was called the, the um, chain of life. And out of that is born the, the movement for independence of Lithuania. Lithuania becomes the first Soviet Republic to declare its independence from the Soviet Union in March of 1990. In Ukraine, a little bit later, the same kind of a process. Out of ecological mobilization comes the movement for independence of Ukraine. And it's, it's very interesting that if Lithuania was the first republic to declare independence, once Ukraine went to the referendum and voted for its independence, the Soviet Union fell within the next few days, within one week. So the first country and the last to declare independence, their movement for independence starts with the protests, with mobilization around Chernobyl and around nuclear. And it wasn't about the explosion itself. Those people, they were not going after the managers of nuclear power plant, or didn't go after the, the designers of the, of the reactor. They were going after the authorities who were actually keeping that information from them. So it's, it, it probably wouldn't be much of simplification to say that the Soviet Union fell really 
there are many reasons, economic and otherwise, but one of them was just inability, inability really to handle truth and find how, how to deal with it. We are now in the era when no one country, no one politician, whether nice like Gorbachev or awful like, I don't know, <coughs> Stalin or something like that, has control over the information. The, the uh, new uh, sarcophagus or the new shelter that was recently built over the fourth reactor, uh, the exploded uh, reactor in Chernobyl, it was funded mostly by the G7 money. Again, there was some money from Ukraine, from, from uh, Russia, from, from Kazakhstan, but most of that money came from G7. The, 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 the people are there working there, the, the uh, uh, biologists, medical doctors from all over the world go there and conduct their research. There is no any more monopoly on that. But we are also in a situation where there is too many sources of information. Too much disagreement. 4,000 died from Chernobyl or 100,000. Who is right? Who is wrong? We are, in, we are, we are facing new, new challenges in this post-truth era. And uh, there are vested interests. There are interests of the nuclear industry who are not really crazy about, about the uh, HBO Sky miniseries because they are bad for business. There are people who myself who are really concerned about climate change. And wow, bingo, nuclear. That can help us. That can save us. And again, that's, that's, that's another group of people who have legitimate concerns and have, have a, a proposal of how we can deal with that. There are also, there are also conspiracy theories out there. One of the most uh, popular documentaries about Chernobyl, and I, I, uh, once the book was out, I got a lot of questions about it. It is called Russian Woodpecker. I wonder whether any of you watched it. Okay, so that's, that's uh, um, a documentary about uh, uh, engineer, it seems to me he's engineer by, by, by training, but a guy who, who believes that the Chernobyl exploded because it was part of the secret uh, military program. Next to Chernobyl was this uh, super powerful radar system that required a lot of electricity and it was built next to Chernobyl and that the Chernobyl exploded because something went wrong at, at the radar, at the, at that radar installation, which is not true, but again, that's, that's what is out there. Uh, the the um, uh, Russian film industry just announced, or maybe not just, but after, after the, the release of HBO Sky miniseries, that they were doing their own miniseries on that. They are unhappy with what they saw there, that that was an attack on, on the Russian state, on the Russian scholarship, on the Rosatom, the, the, the ministry that handles all things nuclear from, the, from construction of reactors to this recent explosion at, at, uh, in northern Russia, where seven people died and it looks like they're now uh, conflicting, uh, conflicting reports of whether the authorities want the people in the nearby village to be evacuated or not. So in the morning it looks like they wanted to do that. Now it is not clear whether this is happening or not. So what they're, what they're uh, shooting, they're shooting a, another, what they believe will be a blockbuster where allegedly the CIA is somehow involved in the <laughs> in, 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 in explosion uh, in Chernobyl. So uh, what does this all mean? And I, I think I'm already, oh, I'm so, oh, too bad. They told me that there is there, 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 there is clock over there, but there are too many, too many <laughs> lights. Uh, or maybe I should change my glasses. I, 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 th I think you have an audience who really <laughs> want to ask you questions. So, so uh, but uh, what I want to say is actually it's not enough to improve the uh, design of the reactors, and people are doing that. It's also very important to understand in social, in economic, and political terms, what were preconditions of Chernobyl, or what were preconditions of, of Fukushima, or Three Mile Island, or what happened here in, in UK in 1957. And it's even more important not to find that, but agree on, on the truth about that. 
because our truth is now compartmentalized. We are in these echo chambers. When nuclear, it's, it's a global threat or global solution, whatever you, you, you want to think about that, we, have, we can't afford to have alternative facts and alternative truths about that. On this hopefully semi-optimistic note, <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, ending my presentation. And again, thanks for being so patient. You were supposed to stop me maybe 20 minutes ago. <laughs> Thank you for that really wonderful summary, and particularly that, that kind of end point. I want to pick you up on that concept of post-truth. You know, that, the idea of truth being almost one of the greatest issues of our, of our current age. And there's a few things I want to ask about that. But first of all, I just want to ask, how was your book received? Just, just to entertain people. Okay. <laughs> I'll come on to that in a second, interestingly enough. How was this? Well, you mentioned post-truth. <laughs> How was this book received in Russia? Well, uh, I don't know. Um, I know that a publisher in Russia actually got rights for the book, and they, they are um, translating it. Uh, my experience with my previous books that uh, there, there, there are publishing houses, and there is, there is a quite healthy society in Russia uh, uh, especially in, in big cities and things like that. But they're isolated, they're, they're the minority, and again, if, if you watched, there were certainly protests in Moscow now. So those people are there, and those people are, who are interested in that, who, who, who read that stuff, who think about that, who are prepared to, to discuss that, not uncritically, but, but in, in, in a very productive way. But also you get you get what uh, you, you get probably normally these days on, on uh, the the trolls and and some um, unpleasant attacks and things like that. But again, uh, it's 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 really you have you have more than one Russia there. I mean, in some sense, this book it's slightly a simplification to put it like this, but it's it's like a modern parable about transparency and the need for transparency. And just because you have put that slide up there. Do you get any sense that in the country you live in at the moment, in America, the issues around transparency, this development of fake news, post-truth, can you see any parallels between America today and the Soviet Union then? Uh, well, I, I don't see parallels, but I, I see that uh, we can be sometimes further from truth than, 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 than uh, we, we were before the end of the Cold War. Uh, and in the U.S., probably the situation is the same as in U.K., so a big part of the, of the uh, cultural elite is, is just can't understand what is going on. We, we are in a very new world in a sense that it is an information revolution, and, and uh, the, the, the sources are multiple. And on the other hand, uh, it's not just that the traditional media is not there or is treated differently, but the traditional media was undercut by Internet. The, the ads went on the Internet, so they really don't have money to send someone to a faraway place or, or to, to, to allow a person to work one week, two weeks, one month maybe on some story. If you don't have that resources, if you don't have that money, you, you end up... Uh, reusing something that is produced by, by others. So th there is also a decline in the traditional media in terms of the, of the quality of, of, of reporting. And uh, uh, thank God for BBC and, and, and the, the fact that the, the, at this point they, they, they are not in the position of, of the US media when it's all entertainment. Uh, other, otherwise you, 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 can't, you can't make money for for keep going for, 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 for your TV show or, 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 uh, or radio or newspaper. I mean, some would say, thank God for historians like yourself. I mean, how, how hard is it now to be a historian in this era? Uh, well, it's fun <laughs> <laughs> in, 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 in a strange way. And um, 
I, I was mentioning KGB, for example, reports, and, and good part of that is there. And my next book is also will be based on that. In Ukraine, in the last few years, there is opening of the archives as, as part of that revolution and Maidan revolution that happened there. And for a historian, it's Klondike. It's, it's the time that was worth living through for, for, for all these years when we, we didn't have that access. And uh, uh, one more thing is my feeling is that history is, is more, um, uh, there is more demand for good history today than it was, let's say, 10 years ago. And part of that maybe is this complete collapse of authority complete collapse of, or not complete, but we are going there in terms of the quality reporting, in particular in, in the United States, and, and people still need senses. They, they, they still need some foundation for, for, for knowing where are we? Okay, let, let's at least figure out where we are coming from. Maybe that can help us. So that, 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 that is at least my sense. And again, I, I, uh, so I'm not complaining at this point about, about uh, choosing a profession of historian back 30 years ago in the closed city, in the closed society. Uh, I, I, I'm uh, uh, living now really fascinating, f f through a very fascinating period in, 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 the, uh, um, in, in the field, in particular in the field of, of uh, Russian, East European, Ukrainian history. So there's a lot more to come then from you and from those archives. Well, yes, yes, absolutely. Archives, uh, archives keep, keep, keep giving. Uh, the, the question is the publishers, whether they're still interested. <laughs> <laughs> I think, as anyone who's read this book will know, the publishers are definitely still interested. Okay. One of the things that, you know, you, there's almost a, a kind of streak of nostalgia that runs through this book, a kind of... Um, I, one of the reviewers described it almost as Tolstoyan. I mean, do you, do you feel that, you know, when you write about it and when you did write about it, did you feel that sense of a certain degree of love for, for that world that you've now uh, left behind? Uh, yeah, it's lost world, right? It's lost yeah. world. And, and that's one of the reasons why many people, for example, in Ukraine, when they watched uh, uh, Sky miniseries, they, they knew that there were inaccuracies here and there, but that was, oh my gosh, it's, it's going back going back in the times when I was young. And uh, probably that was also there. I, I didn't do that on purpose, but probably I couldn't, I couldn't just control my, my feelings. Yes, I didn't like all of that. Yes, it is a tragedy, but that's also happened to be the time when I was, uh, I don't, I, I'm not disclosing my age, but when I was <laughs> younger. <laughs> well, I am, I am gonna disclose my age, I was eight. When, when, okay. when the Chernobyl explosion happened. And, uh, I, mean, I it's, was it's, a little bit older. It's, it's <laughs> not, I'm sure not much. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it's funny for me because Chernobyl, when I hear the name Chernobyl, it's, it's the cover of this book. It's, it's buttons, it's modernity. But at the start of the book, you write a really interesting passage or, or a number mm -hmm. of pages about the history of Chernobyl, the place. And it's yeah. quite a long history. It and it's fascinating to get that because I think in the West, we, we're not really aware of that. And Chernobyl means something different to us. Was it important to write that aspect? Well, it was. It was, and, and actually, it's uh, again the, the book will be uh, uh, translated into Ukrainian uh, in September, and I am sure that for for the majority of Ukrainian readers, it would be a surprise to find out that Chernobyl, before the revolution, before the Russian Revolution, was predominantly a Jewish town. It was a shtetl. Again, in, in, in the middle or in northern part of Ukraine, but again, it's, it's changed, it's, it's certainly changed with the revolution and, the, and then Holocaust. So, and and the, 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 the most famous person born in Chernobyl was of Polish descent, and she, she died on guillotine in, in, in France. Um, uh, so, uh, and there were a lot of discoveries for myself, and, and also I'm, I'm sure it will be. Uh, I hope it will be interesting not only for, for readers in UK, but also for readers in my own country. I'm conscious we've, we've got about 10 minutes left, and I do want to open to questions from the audience. So if we could have the lights up, please. There's a roving mic. There's a hand up already. There's a gentleman there right in the center. If you just wait till the microphone gets to you before you ask the question, please. Uh, you mentioned how first Lithuania and then Ukraine and other republics were radicalized by the aftermath of this. 
the republic that's second closest to Chernobyl, and in fact, it, Belarus includes part of the exclusion zone, does it not? Yes, yes, yes. It yes, seems um, to be the least radicalised uh, of the, the ex-Soviet republics, even to this, to this day. Okay, Is there well, any uh, particular reason, you know, why? Well, well, well thanks for this question. It's, it's, I, I, before coming here, I just wrote a review of book, Manual for Survival, when, where I was discussing that. Uh, uh, Belarus is the, the republic, today the country, that is the most affected by Chernobyl in terms of the, uh, uh, the, the absolute number of the territory that was affected and, and percentage-wise. Uh, but uh, that was the country that uh, the mobilization really didn't happen. And what that means is that the mobilization in this movement was happening. Chernobyl was a factor, but the society had to be ready for that. Again, Lithuania was not much affected, but was one of the first to be mobilized. Uh, another reason is that um, uh, what happened at in, uh, as, as crow flights, Chernobyl is only 100 kilometers away from Kiev. It's an administrative center, academic center, cultural center. And that, that, that's where a little of the country lived, or, or part of it. And they felt to be personally affected by what was happening only 100 kilometers away. In, in, in Belarus, Minsk is pretty far away. In, in, in Russia, the, the, the country that actually, uh, that the, 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 the concern about Chernobyl really didn't register on the political scale at all was Russia. But Russia, again, do you ever hear about Russia suffering from Chernobyl? It's, big part of the territory was affected by that. That's when they were seeding rain in particular. Uh, so it's the, a number of things had to come together and you, 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 you have to have a, a, a quite vibrant or ready to become vibrant society to take that as an issue, to be mobilized uh, and, and to fight for that. And in, in Belarus that society wasn't there. I am I, not sure whether it is there now as well. Next question. Anybody? Yes, there's several up there in the back left. I see a lady on the left-hand side next to another lady in the pink. If you go there first. Um, first of all, thank you for a very, very fascinating talk. Um, you mentioned um, your sort of relation, the relationship between climate change and nuclear and what you, you seeing it as a, something that could help climate change. Is that something that you campaign on? And do you, how do you feel we can make arguments around that to politicians, industry, just people, you know, general public. <laughs> right, right. Thank you. Thank you. No, I'm not campaigning around, around that or any particular, any particular um, issue. I, I don't have solutions. Again, I, I, I think, uh, again, I, I can write history. I can have opinions, but I don't think I have solutions. But without having solutions, I still give advice. <laughs> so uh, if, 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 I, can, I can certainly share one now. And um, uh, some people read my book, including editors, and said, well, we are surprised by, by the conclusions, because after all that you described, we thought that you would say, okay, damn nuclear, we're not supposed to have it, and so on and so forth. I don't think it's really realistic. I am, in the long term, I think that the renewables, this is, this is our salvation. But I don't think how uh, the country like, like uh, France, where 80% of electricity is produced by nuclear, can, can go nuclear-free. I'm a little bit uneasy about expectations the Germans might have when they go nuclear-free, but the, the, as Chernobyl showed, the, the borders don't exist. The, the sovereignty ends where nuclear starts. So I think that uh, the, the, the solution is uh, uh, not to build more nuclear reactors, but take good care of those that we have right now. And uh, uh, that will keep us busy for a long period of time. Because even if things go right and, and reactor doesn't explode and everything is good, but it, it goes through its resource, enormous amount of money is needed actually to decommission the whole thing, to clean. And then forever and ever and half forever again to, to, to care about the spent fuel. 
this is I, I'm I'm not sure what, what the story is in UK. It's a huge huge problem in in the US. They already built uh, in, in in a huge rock the, the 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 place for that. But the, the attitude is okay. This is a wonderful thing, but not in my backyard. And that the problem is unresolved. Let's say it is resolved. That means that for generations and generations to come, we'll have to have resources allocated, people there monitoring that, supporting the, the right temperature and all these other things, wonderful things. Uh, so uh, it's, 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 it's the, 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 uh, we use that electricity today, but we are, we'll be paying for it or, or our children for a very long period of time. So I think we, we, we have to stop where we are and take care of the reactors that we have. We've got time for a couple more quick questions. There's a gentleman there. Thank you for a really interesting talk. The RBMK reactor that was used in Chernobyl and many other places in Russia, are they still in use or have they been decommissioned now? Uh, the last time I checked Wikipedia, which maybe is not... A <laughs> good, good source for a historian. <laughs> Uh, 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 again, I was convinced that they were decommissioned. They, indeed, they're, they're not running in Ukraine anymore, but my understanding is there are two reactors still in Russia, go, uh, uh, RBMK reactors going on. Again, after Chernobyl, they made all sorts of changes then, and so, and so on and so forth, so hopefully they're more safe. But again, it's, it's a matter of probably the next few years they, 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 will, be, they will be gone. Okay, one last question. There's a lady in the front row there. Yeah, thank you for a fascinating book, and you make a compelling case for the totalitarianism having been such a, an issue that uh, okay. contributed yeah, here you to are. it. Somehow it was working. Good. But I wonder um, if you see an equal concern about commercial organisations running um, nuclear power stations in Britain and, and the US and the, you know the Chinese and sure. whoever else might want to come in doing that and they're going to have no reason to want to collaboratively share their problems. Sure, sure. Uh, well, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, actually, that's what I was thinking also when I was writing this book. Because it's relatively easy to say, okay, the RBM car reactor is almost gone. The Soviet Union is gone. That, 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 that system is gone. So we can uh, uh, have a sigh of relief. But they were there and they were cutting corners and saving on the way how they were doing construction for the same reasons why the commercial the, the, the companies are doing today. I, except that in today's world in the West it was called and is called profit. Back in the Soviet Union it was about meeting the, the, the quotas. The, the operators after the, the explosion of Chernobyl nuclear power plant when they were interviewed and said, okay, what was the worst case scenario you thought that could happen, and so on and so forth. They were saying, well, the worst was if you would shut down the reactor, and they were supposed to shut it down before it exploded. Without the proper reason, our bonuses would be taken away, and we probably would be fired. Because at the end, they were producing electricity, they were meeting the, 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 the targets, which is, again, yeah, different systems, the, the different ways, but the, the, the bottom line is the same. So it is, it is business, it is commercial. They're there to make money and to cut their costs, which means that the, 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 the overall oversight, the government oversight, the, the, the independent oversight should be, uh, should be there. One of the problems with the Soviet Union was that there was no independent oversight. Government owned everything. Government was everything. It's, it's, it, it, it was commissioning the plant. It was building the plant. It was uh, the, the, they were they were uh, uh, um, putting into into uh, uh, operation the reactors that were not fully done yet. But there was enormous pressure on the director of the nuclear power plant to sign those papers. Pressure coming from the party authorities, from the government authorities. So again, what I'm trying to say is that the independence of that watchdog, independence of that absolute independence of that body, is is essential. And what we have today in the in the on the world scale, we have the uh, International Atomic Energy, which is a wonderful institution, 
but which is responsible for two things at the same time. One is the promotion of nuclear energy in the world, peaceful uses of nuclear energy. Another is actually uh, making sure that uh, uh, nuclear power plants are up to standards, whatever the standards are. And they're all good people. They, 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 they all have uh, degrees from good universities and so and a lot of experience, but being in one institution, in one organization, that's the, the, there is a conflict of interest written just right there on the, I, I would put that on their building. On that, on that note, I'm afraid, <laughs> <laughs> that sad note, yeah. we have to finish. Thank, Thank you again. Thank you. Now, there is, there's one last thing I should tell you about, ladies and gentlemen. You're a very lucky audience not just to see Serhi speak, but you're all going to get a free copy of this, which is a special essay commissioned by the Book Festival along with the Bailey Gifford Prize. And as you leave, you're going to be given a copy of this. Serhi is going to be signing copies of this essay and his book at the George Street Shop, which is just that direction. So if you go out that way, you're going to have to turn right and go round, but he'll be there signing copies right now. So thank you again, Serhi. That was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and keep up to date on events, booking information and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search at edbookfest. The Edinburgh International Book Festival takes place every August in Charlotte Square Gardens.